reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and uh, it is page 956 in your pew Bible. I also would like to ask you if you could please stand up for the reading of God's word. Uh, The reason why we stand up is that uh, we are coming before God's word, we are hearing it, and we are worshiping God. We are, uh, just like Nehemiah had the had the uh, Israelites stand in worship of God, and they stood before when Jesus read the word, we are standing. I know, uh, I know I'm the only one that does it, and uh, so I'm sorry if you hate it. <laughs> um, all right, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, and that is page 956 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and for whom we exist. And our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all, sorry, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possesses knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this is right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who, having knowledge eating an idol in a temple will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." This is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, so you won't get worried that the roast in your oven is uh, doomed to be a burnt offering. I am going to tell you right up front that my introduction is going to be very long. Um, But after that, not so much. So um, I'm I'm bearing the uh, roast in mind. Um, But first off, as we approach the fall, uh, we often think of this time as kind of a a start of a new year. And I'm going to start, actually, a, a couple of series. The first is going to be a series, um, a study through the book of Galatians. 
You see, Galatians plays a key and unique role in Scripture, whereas Romans is the Holy Spirit's explanation or exposition of the gospel, Galatians is the Holy Spirit's defense of the gospel, and, and that is huge. For a large part of my life, I thought I really understood the gospel. It's God's plan of salvation, right? But folks, it is so much more than that. It goes way beyond that. The gospel touches everything in our lives, and it, and it speaks to the way we think about everything. And it's to be a lens through which we look at everything. And because it's that important, the gospel is always under attack. The, the, the devil has it in his crosshairs, as it were. It's under attack in the church. It's under attack in society. It's under attack in our hearts. And because of that, it always needs to be defended. And as I believe you're going to see, there are so many applications and implications for us living right now, no matter what your age is, no matter what your stage of life. And Galatians is one of the best places to learn those implications and applications to see how the gospel does indeed touch everything. But I mentioned that I'm doing a couple of series, and what I mean by that is this. On the first Sunday of each month, the communion Sundays, I'm going to take a pause uh, in the Galatians studies, and we're going to be dealing with personal worship from the Psalms. You know, last week we dealt with Mary and, and sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word, and she was choosing the one necessary thing Christ said. And, but what does that look like? How does that play out in my life? What does doing that in the course of my activities and all that is on my plate, what is that going to look like? Well, one key aspect is personal worship. A worship that is truly personal. And I have to confess that I was a pastor for many years before I had any concept or practice of personal worship. Now, I prayed, you know, and thought that that, in a sense, checked the worship box, but it didn't. And I was spiritually poorer because private worship was missing from my life. To a great degree, the Psalms are God's worship manual. They teach us both by precept and example how to meet with God, how to pour out your hearts before him, how to think through who he is and what he has done so as to lift our souls up out of doubt and discouragement and into praise and joy and especially into worship. One of the most surprising things about the Psalms is that David and the other Psalm writers they arrive in God's presence just as they are. Many of the Psalms begin with David complaining or David grieving or in some cases David raging in frustration. Lord, have you forgotten to be gracious? You know, he says on one occasion. And then in another, he wants to escape his life. He said, Lord, let me out of here. So he comes to God, and the other writers do as well as he is. And mo many of those Psalms that you know, kind of begin in the pits, begin with the frustration or the grieving or the, uh, uh, you know, the complaining of one kind or another. Many of them that begin that way end up, in a sense, on the mountaintop of praise and encouragement. So we're not going to be going chronologically. We're not going to be covering every psalm. But I'm just going to be selecting a different psalm each communion Sunday just to see the Lord 
with our spiritual eyes and then to show us how to worship him. But on this last Sunday of the summer, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And this passage provides a a really good opportunity for self-examination and a good opportunity to think about what kind of Christians we are and to some extent what kind of church we are and want to be. Are we the kind that attracts people to Jesus, that makes them want to have and to know what we have and we know? Or are we the kind that, in a sense, makes Jesus unattractive, that repels the lost? The difference does not boil down to practice nearly as much as it does to our hearts. You see, how we act starts with what we believe and how we think. And what we are taught here in this passage, if we truly understand it, it's going to deliver us from pride and deliver us from a feeling of superiority. And it's going to move us toward the humility and the graciousness that Jesus and the gospel dictates. So with God's word open before us, let's pray and let's ask for the Holy Spirit's light on this passage we're going to consider today. Let's bow before him. Father, we bless you and praise you today that we have this glorious opportunity to come into your presence and to open your word, Lord. How we thank you that you have preserved this word across every generation and that it speaks to every generation. Thank you that there is nothing in um, modern society with all of our technological uh, advances that goes beyond the truth of your word. You knew all. You anticipated all. And you were speaking, Lord, right to our hearts. And we ask you today, Father, that your spirit would be poured out upon us, that he would speak to each of us individually, and that he would today take this word and apply it to our hearts, that we would have the healthy kind of heart, that we would have the heart, O Lord, uh, that reflects Jesus Christ and has the very savor of his presence in everything we do, everything we think, everything we say. Make that so today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm actually not finished with the introduction. Uh, Now I'm really introducing 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I mentioned earlier that this passage provides a a good opportunity for self-examination and self-assessment. You know, that's an aspect of Christian life that is actually commanded in the Word of God, but it also comes naturally. You know, for most of us, I mean, we we step back, we take stock, you know, how are we doing? We assess things. And so it comes naturally in one way or another. Well, since it's commanded, we would say, well, it, it ought to be a good thing, right? It's a good thing. And it's a necessary part of walking with the Lord. And all that is true. But it's also dangerous. And it's dangerous because... It has extremes, extremes on both sides that can damage us, it can damage others around us. Now on the one hand, it is commanded. Let me give you a couple examples of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. This is in the context of communion. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then there is 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So here's the word of God commanding us to this exercise. So you ask, where's the danger? (laughs) You know, I don't see it. 
Well, the danger is like this. If in this process of self-assessment, and be assured the devil is, is going to be nearby, He's going to spy his opportunity. And if in that process of examining ourselves, we believe what is not true, something that is not true, or we don't believe what is true, then we can end up in one of two very dangerous extremes. The one is self-condemnation. The other is a Pharisaical pride. Two extremes. The one sounds like this. You know, the, the fruit of our self-examination is, oh, I am a miserable failure. I am nobody. I know nothing. God's disgusted with me. And that's where we end. But the other side, the pharisaical pride sounds like this. I'm amazing. And I know so much. And isn't God tickled to have me on his team? <laughs> Maybe we don't think that out loud, you know. Um, but it gets that way. Just self-congratulatory, you know, in how we feel. Well, those are two extremes. And, and honestly, I think the devil doesn't care much as, you know, which extreme it is as long, as long as it's an extreme. I think that's true about a lot of things in Scripture. There's an extreme to the right. There's an extreme to the left. They both will do harm. They both will do damage. And so the devil just wants us at one extreme or the other, but never in the middle with our eyes on Christ. So he works through those extremes. Now, you say, what does this have to do with this passage? Well, let's look at it now. And let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So what you have here is, is he's you know, painting the picture of a hypothetical person who's puffed up with their knowledge. And so you have someone believing something that is not true, that they know a lot. And verse 2 says it's not true. They knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So but they think they know a lot. They're assessing themselves by it, and there's that self-congratulatory spirit. Now, that's not good for him, but in the context, what we see later uh, in the chapter that was read to us, it's not good for others either. It's not going to have a good effect on others. And what we call this is, this is in Scripture the stronger brother type. Uh, Romans chapter 14 talks about the stronger and the weaker brother. Or it's also known as the elder brother type from the parable of the uh, prodigal son. And it's that kind who are puffed up with their knowledge and who can run right over the weaker brother types. What are the weaker brother types like? Well, the weaker brother types are the believers who tend to be very insecure in their standing in Jesus Christ. So they're always taking their temperature. Am I deserving? What am I deserving? How am I doing? And always worried about that. So constantly taking their temperature and also usually very quick to condemn themselves for what they do or they don't do. And both of those types are found in this passage. But for this to make sense, let me just step back for a minute and explain what's going on here. In other words, what is this food offered to idols all about? Well, 
the pagan temples of that time had sacrifices. They would sacrifice animals in those pagan temples. And after the sacrifices were finished, the meat would often be sold in the markets to recoup some of the cost. So if you bought meat in your local you know, market, frequently there was no way of telling, no way to be sure if it had been offered to an idol or not. Well, that created a problem for the Church of Jesus Christ, a problem for believers. And so this actually was dealt with in Acts chapter 15. That's the very first Christian council where they all uh, got together in Acts chapter 15 uh, to decide issues, and this was one of the ones that they addressed. It also is talked about in Romans chapter 14, and it's also talked about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. But let me summarize what Paul taught about this. First off, he said this, and the church said this, don't eat meat offered to idols when you know it is, is such. When you know it's offered to idols, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 goes on to talk about don't have fellowship with devils. So if you know it's offered to idols, then just don't partake. You take your Christian stand there. But then secondly, if you don't know, don't worry about it. And part of that was found right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and these devils are non-existent, you know, that these temples are sacrificing to. And so if you're just going to the market and buying meat, you don't know where it comes from, don't worry about it. Stand before God, and as, as he says later to Timothy, it's sac your, your food is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. But... Thirdly, and once again, this is part of our scripture reading today. If you recognize that there are brothers and sisters who don't get that and who are scared to do that because they don't understand, and or maybe as 1 Corinthians 8 tells us, they have a background uh, that was really, you know, part of being uh, of the, these idol temples. If that is the case, then it is better not to eat meat unless you can absolutely certainly verify that it was not offered to idol. In other words, you are going to be considerate of your brother and sister, your weaker brother and sister who struggles with this issue. You're going to love them by just not partaking of it. So what do we see here? We see on a single issue this tendency to two extremes, pharisaical pride on the one hand or self-condemnation on the other. And folks, these things boil down to the attitudes of our hearts based on what we believe. Verses 1 to 3 in their context, context gives us a good window into these attitudes of our hearts and what they should be and what they should not be. And so that's what I want us to consider today. We're going to think about heart therapy. And I want to simply look at what the, the attitudes of our heart should not be and then at what they should be. So let's begin with the unhealthy heart as viewed through this passage. And let's look at verses 1 and 2 once again. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. If you, if you, you know, dwell on how much you know, it puffs up. Whereas love builds up. But then this sobering statement, if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
not nearly what he ought to know. See, it's to see at, at, at the center of this kind of heart is pride, is being consumed with self. And of course, that pride is undermined by truth. And it's condemned. Boys, sometimes just go through the book of Proverbs and look at all the times it mentions pride. It is a deadly thing. It harms you, it harms those around you. It is indeed deadly. So here in this passage, you don't know as much as you think you do. That's, that's the point. And isn't and, and interesting that Paul is saying this? Paul, who, you know, may know more than anybody in this New Testament period, the Apostle Paul, who was taught the gospel by Jesus Christ in the wilderness. You know, the Apostle Paul, um, and we'll get to that in Galatians, where he talks about that. Um, but here's the Apostle Paul, including himself in this, saying, you know nothing as you ought to know, which ought to lead to humility. So folks, we never have a corner on the truth. We can never be in a position to be self-congratulatory. There is always more to know. And you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we are told we know in part. That's just part of being in the flesh. That's just part of not getting to heaven yet. We just know in part. And notice that it says, he ought to know. In other words, you ought to know it because it's right there. Uh, and by the way, uh, I have participated in this and I've heard others do it at times where I'm just cursing the stuff that I was taught, you know, in the past. Come on. According to this verse right here, as you ought to know, you have the word of God. You have the, G the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the, the scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit to open the Word of God to you. Don't blame others. Don't blame them. So it's right there. As he ought to know, the Spirit is our promised teacher. But in ourselves, we can be weak, we can be unbelieving, we can be sinful, and, and we can tend to put a thousand things in the way of our understanding. Um, I had to have a very powerful and humbling lesson in the early days of my ministry. You know, I come out of seminary, and you think you know everything. <laughs> you know, you, you want to talk to everybody because, after all, you got the answers, you know. And so that was the way I felt. And, um, but I noticed that whenever I met a Christian, it was like, okay, let me gauge where things stand, you know. So I would meet a believer, especially if it was a pastor. And, you know, not literally, but figuratively, I would pull out my checklist. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? What do you believe? You know, and I'd go down the list, you know, in, in the hopes that they'd get some things wrong and I would feel better about myself, you know. And it um, wasn't healthy, not at all. But... Over time, the Lord worked in my heart, in some cases, through those interactions. Um, but then I think to a great degree through this very passage that I know nothing as I ought to know. And I remember coming to this conclusion, okay, if I get to heaven and the Lord says, you were wrong in only 12,755 things, but the pastor down the road was wrong in 12,758 do you think I'm going to feel like gloating? I mean, you know, do, do you think there's really anything to be self-congratulatory about in that scenario? Not at all. But you see, my pride led to a fear of having to confess I was wrong. I thought it's my business to be right, and so I've got to be right, and I've got to protect that at all costs. 
But folks, that leads to a question that I had to face and I, I think all of us need to face. Would you rather stay wrong on something and protect your pride or know the truth which Jesus says will set you free? Which is really worth having? Which, which is really the better way to look at it? So seeing that has helped me look at other believers with new eyes. And it has helped me learn so much from brothers and sisters in Christ that before I just would not have had any time for in the past. You know, there's a quote that I want to share with you sometime, uh, not enough time to do it today, but I'm going to tell you the point of it, and it's this. If you only interact with Christians just like you, you will miss out on so much. You will rob yourself of the chance to learn truths you don't know. You will rob yourself to learn through the works of God in hearts of people if you don't take the time to listen to them, to ask them, to talk to them. Folks, worse than this superior attitude, which, you know what it does, it keeps us ignorant in the name of knowledge, but worse than that is the fact that it does incredible damage to others, to other believers and to the lost. Um, I want to read you, it's, it's fairly short, but it's a blog post uh, by a man named Chad West. And what caught my attention on this was the title. It is called The Wrongness of Being Right. Listen to what he says. The first time I ever fully realized that being right might be a vice was in, res in a response I got on Facebook a while back. I had posted on my personal page that not everyone believes what we believe, and to expect non-Christians to act like Christians was counterproductive. Someone responded, well, that makes them wrong, doesn't it? He was right, but something about the way in which he was right felt very wrong. I couldn't put into words what it was that I was feeling, but I knew that the way he responded wasn't Christian, though he, though he is. Since then, I've come to a deeper understanding of how my tendency to want to fix everyone, everyone's bad theology, often negates their ability to accept any love from me. It also invites them to pick me apart, find everything nasty about me and throw it in my face. It obliterates any chance at a deep relationship. Truth matters. I want to be clear that I believe that. But knowing truth and being wise about when kindness and mercy matter more than correcting theological error or ignorance is an important skill to hone. Because I want to be right. I want to fix you so much it's literally painful at times. I am a sick, sick puppy who's not near as smart as he thinks he is. But I'm learning that the need to be right on every little thing, even when it comes from noble intentions, obliterates my ability to speak the ultimate truth. Now, I needed to hear that. It's a good word, you see. Because, again, there's more to consider than dotting I's and crossing T's. This better and more knowledgeable than thou attitude of heart, it bears fruit, but it's not good fruit. It really is not. And what can happen if that is the grid through which we look at everything, that we are right, this superiority of heart attitude, it can lead to versions of Christianity that in the end of the day are just damaging. They are harmful. And I want to give you some examples of that. 
It can lead to an angry Christianity. You know, in other words, why don't people see it the way I see it? You know, and, and you're just angry all the time. It's, it's not a Christianity that's very much fun, but it also isn't attractive. It repels people because that anger is always there. It can also lead to a controlling kind of Christianity. Listen, I know the truth, and I know what you ought to believe, and I'm going to tell you what you should believe and how you should live. But folks, that's like trying to do the Holy Spirit's work for him as if he doesn't exist, if his, if he, as if he hasn't been promised to the church to be the one to teach us all things. There is no man that needs to control God's people. And you know what this kind of Christianity does? It creates the two deadliest things in the church and in our hearts, and that is pride on the one hand and fear on the other. It works to create pride and it works to create fear. It can also create a proud and hierarchical Christianity, you know, in other words, where there's echelons, you know, there's status. You know, the more you know, the more status you have, or it can be tied to positions in the church. And, you know, the, the whole idea is, you know, who's the greatest? You know, who's at the top of the food chain, so to speak? But, you know, when the Lord Jesus met that, Jesus said, look at me, I am among you as a servant. And when his disciples were arguing about who should be the greatest, he said, that's what the Gentiles do, and it will not be so among you. You are not to do that. That was what he emphasized to them. He that is greatest among you is the servant of all. That's the heart that you are looking for. That's what Jesus wanted. But then one other kind of example is it can create a Christianity that has just lost its mission, that has left its first love. See, if a church exists to be right and more right than everyone else, it has forgotten what it is to begin with. That is a group of sinners saved by grace who owe everything they are and everything they have to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, to what Jesus Christ has did. If we boast, there's only one place to boast. It's in Jesus. It's just in Jesus. So if we exist to be right, we've forgotten what this verse says about knowing nothing as we ought to know. And instead, we're arrogantly standing in judgment on the sheep of the good shepherd, on the bride of the bridegroom, on the body of Jesus the head. And we never have that authority. We never know enough to sit in judgment on everyone else who belongs to Christ. And you know what it tends to do is it fixes our eyes on a horizontal plane when the Lord wants them on a vertical plane. When the Lord wants us looking to him and standing before him, loving him and ministering to him. And this horizontal plane, uh, on the other hand, is full of comparing. You know, always taking the temperature and comparing ourselves with other people, it leads to competition. And, and, you know, what an awful thing, you know, that in the church of Jesus Christ, we're in competition with one another. Why? How should that be? And one thing it leads to, too, and this is plaguing our society, but if we're not careful, it can plague the church as well, and that is polarization. That is where we're just into our little groups, you know, and, and we wall ourselves in the best we can, and we stick our heads over the wall and take pot shots at all those error-filled people, you know, over there, and we just get polarized, and we get our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. The attitudes that come from this kind of pride are dishonoring to Christ and they are destructive to others. 
Now again, let me say like Chad West did, don't misunderstand me. It does not mean that doctrine doesn't matter. Oh, it does. It does not mean you don't have to care or decide what you believe and how you're going to live your life in Christ. Well, you have to stand before God for how you followed his word. Remember last week when we were talking about Peter looking at John having received the bad news from Jesus? Well, what about him? And what was Jesus' answer? What is that to you? You follow me. And that's a good word for each of us. Follow him. Keep our eyes on him. Have that vertical plane as opposed to the horizontal one. Um, it does mean, though, that we never have a cause to stand in judgment on our brothers and sisters in Christ. To their own master they stand or fall, we read in Romans 14. Jesus is writing their story. The Holy Spirit is their teacher. It's never our business to be the judge. And by the way, um, I can become very upset at those who model and defend this kind of pharisaical, superior arrogant Christianity. But if I stay there and I keep looking at them and keep focusing on being upset at them, what happens is I become the Pharisee. Um, there's a very helpful book that, uh, written by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God, and it's about the story of the prodigal son. And he especially deals with these two kinds of people that we have been looking at. And when I was first reading it, and he was describing the elder brother and those who were doing it all right and have a superior attitude as a result and, you know, who believe God owes them because of how right they are and all the good that they are doing. And I'm going, that is right. I know that attitude. I have met that attitude. They are so wrong. And Keller's next words were, and if you're thinking of and judging those who fit this description, you are the elder brother. It's like, ouch, you know, it hurt, but... He's right. It is so true, folks. The elder, stronger brother types and every other type that is different from us, we have to remember they are people who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. So far as we know, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we will spend eternity with them. Christ lived for them and he died for them. They're precious to him who is precious to us. So how can we not forgive them and love them? We who depend every day on his forgiving, his forgiving our many trespasses. That's the reality. Uh, Tim Keller had a, a telling statement. He says, you know, if you're intolerant of intolerant people, you're intolerant. If you're judgmental of judgmental people, you're judgmental. And that is the truth. But let's turn our attention finally in the last few minutes. What does the healthy heart look like? What does that look like? And let's go through verses 1 to 3 just one more time. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, the great importance is not what or how much you know, but that I am known of God. 
That's the important thing. It's not what I know, but what he knows. Just as the gospel te te uh, teaches me not to focus my attention or my trust on what I do, but what Jesus has already done. That is the key thing. And so the clear implication of this passage is that we, each of us, need a mega dose of humility with which to stand before God, with which to interact with others, and with which to view ourselves. To stand before God, there's a word in Ecclesiastes, be not rash with your mouth, and let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's just perspective. Yes, humility before the living God. But then also humility before others because there is never a reason for us to feel superior. There is no superiority that should be found in our hearts. All true believers are loved infinitely and accepted and valued completely by the Lord Jesus. And, and those who are outside of the faith are the ones that our master came to seek and to save. So we're to have a forgiving and an understanding spirit towards everyone, towards all others. We are to let them stand before God and we are to be for them and never against them. But then it also has implications when we think about ourselves. Because if we don't know it all, then we have the liberty to come with an open and a seeking mind. A mind that is always seeking Him, always growing. So this verse is humbling, but it's also encouraging and it's liberating. Because you see, if you don't know it all, that should keep you humble. It should keep you seeking. It should make you careful since you, you may be hurt by what you don't know. Or others may be hurt by what you don't know. And also open to what we might learn from other believers in the body of Christ. You remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and the, the bottom line of that was nobody in the body can say to anyone else in the body, I don't need you. We are interdependent. We all need each other. And we ought to start with the fact that God may make anyone else in the church of Christ an instrument to bless me and teach me something I don't know something that may revolutionize my life. That's where our hearts should be, you see. We are all learners, humbly dependent upon the Lord, but therefore expectant too, excited, because He wants to teach us. He loves to do that. And He's giving us the, given us the Holy Spirit to do it. So you see, this verse delivers us from being timid believers who condemn ourselves because of what we don't know or where we've come from or what we haven't done, you know, not doing or doing. Christ is ours. The Spirit of God is ours. You know, in the Protestant Reformation, they had an expression about how they approached reforming the church. And it was called, in Latin, semper reformanda. And what it means is always reforming. In other words, we should never feel like we have arrived. We should always be seeking new light and understanding. We should never refuse to hear our doctrines and our practices challenged. Why? Because if your heart is, is the healthy heart and in the right place, if what you believe is challenged, one of two things is going to be the case. As you defend it, it's going to be able to hold water or it's not. And you have the opportunity to prove that, that it can be defended, that scriptures do uh, confirm what you believe. But if you don't have the truth, 
you should be thrilled that the challenge has pointed out the error and moved you to see and cling to the truth. That's how it ought to be approached, you see. So folks, we're free. You're free. You don't have to worry about what the party will think because you stand before the living God. You know, the biggest point made by all the commentators on this passage is this, that the more true knowledge you have, the humbler you will be and the more convinced you will be that you know little compared to the vast ocean of God's truth. And true knowledge will always lead you to love. The true knowledge that comes from Christ will always lead you to love. So folks, don't let us not stand in arrogance on the one hand, but also let us not sell ourselves short on the other. We have Christ, we have his spirit. Jesus is for us and, and the spirit wants to teach us. So we have the opportunity to ask and to listen and then to do what he said, seek and you will find. That's his promise. Well, we began with self-assessment. How does a healthy heart do that? Well, I think it comes to the Lord in the humility that this verse speaks of. And it just says, Father, thank you. Thank you that I am justified by the finished work of Jesus. Thank you that I have his righteousness and I'm not standing in my own works. Thank you that I am eternally loved. Thank you that my welfare is in your hands so much so that you tell me all things are working together for my good. And therefore you say, fear not. You say, be anxious for nothing. You say, in everything, give thanks. You say, rejoice always. You say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Thank you. And thank you, Lord, for what I do know. And keep me humble about it. But there's a universe of glorious truth I don't know, but I want to know it. So, Lord, you said if I seek you, I would find you. You said that if I seek you, I would be filled with all the fullness of God. I would be a partaker of the divine nature. I would be more than conqueror through him who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what you said. So, Lord, you know all my weakness, but you promised to teach me that my joy might be full. So teach me in your word. Teach me in prayer. Teach me in your house. Teach me by my brothers and sisters. Lord, use everything. I ask and by faith I will therefore expect to be answered exceedingly abundantly above all I ask or think. So I ask, Lord, and you work. And may the Lord make that so for each of us. Let's bow in prayer. Let's all pray. <clears throat> Father, we do praise you for your goodness and your grace today. And Lord, we've taken time to look at the hearts that are displayed for us in this passage. And we ask you that you will give us the humility that the gospel always dictates. And we ask you that you would cause us to, uh, to know that faith which works by love. And we ask, Lord, that we would be a church that is known by our love one for another, that we would be a church, Lord, that walks in humility, that we would be a, a, a church that welcomes everyone as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus Christ to them and to see them blessed by that love. So, Father, pour out your goodness on us, we pray. Work in each of our hearts. Give us confidence and excitement, Lord, at all that you are prepared to teach us and to grant us to experience. And we ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's time now for our, the communion.